This is John Reimer, the Baseball Buddha, episode five of the Breakthrough Podcast. Title of this podcast is Peggy Ann Got Pregnant. So I'm really excited about this episode. I've had this unbelievable conversation with Peggy Ann. Yes, that is her first and her last name. She will get into that because I questioned her on that. She had to uh, point some things out to me, which I really appreciated. She got pregnant the very first time she had sex. She never wanted to have kids or get married for that matter. All she wanted to be was an artist. However, life circumstances, she got married, she had two kids, she got divorced, she had to find a job. So she talks about her doubt, her fears, and how taking a third shift manufacturing job at Empire level to support those kids led to this unbelievable opportunity of a lifetime. Piggy Ann was one of the most honest and forthright people I've ever met, talked to, very open about her life regarding her mental health, her family, and holding people accountable. So anyway, I hope you enjoy her as much as I did talking to her. So without further ado, I give you Peggy Ann. Sitting with Peggy Ann. Can you explain your name? Sure. It's called Peggy Ann because I thought that was your first name, middle name. And then I was always looking for your last name. Everybody is, and especially men guy named Henry Frank or something once asked me, why do you have this name Peggy Ann? And I go, well, why do you have two male names? Why are you asking me this question even? The story of my name came from when I got divorced, I had already made a promise to my then mother-in-law that as long as she was alive, I would never go by Mrs. Wright. That was my former name. I would never, ever do that. She would always be Mrs. Wright. I couldn't change my name legally when I got divorced unless I changed it back to my maiden name, which was Andrew. I did not want my father's name because I hadn't seen him since I was two. He gave no support to my mother. So I was debating over names. I love my grandmother. She was the most influential and important woman in my life. And so I was debating one day, sitting at lunch with my granddaughter, and she said, Nano, why don't you just be yourself? I said, well, myself is Peggy Ann. She goes, okay, why don't you just be Peggy Ann? That's a good idea, and this is a good story. You helped me create it. So I went before a male judge, and I had to plead to get Peggy Ann. Why don't you want your ex-husband's name or your father's? And a male had to decide that. When did that happen? 2007. Can you give a little bit of background on who you are, what, what you accomplish, how you view yourself in this world? Because I view you as a very successful entrepreneur that has built a company and then did a lot of great things with that company. However, you have a whole different other perspective of who you are as a creative and an artist of your real passions. Can you start there? Well, first of all, people have asked me that. My answer is I do not feel like a successful person. I don't think I am. Just because I did something in the business world 
doesn't mean I'm a successful person to me. I view success in a different way. I view success as creating opportunities for other people. Just like one man made a difference in my life. He believed in me and gave me an opportunity. Even his son has said, you were never given an opportunity. You earned every single bit of it. That story, though, it resonates with me so completely. Did you grow up here in Milwaukee? Yes. I grew up in Wauwatosa until fifth grade. My mother and my stepfather moved to Brookfield, and I went from, I guess it was sixth grade, until I barely graduated from high school in Brookfield. What was it like growing up in your household, your family? What influenced you early on in your your childhood? Well, my mother never talked about why my father left. I have no idea. She wouldn't talk about it when I asked. My mother was manipulative. She was mean. She called me fat and stupid. My stepfather was weak, and he let her verbally and physically abuse him, and she verbally abused me too. So obviously that had a very profound impact growing up and regarding your self-worth. So what did that do to you uh, internally? How did you express that? First of all, I have critical post-traumatic stress disorder, which started with my father leaving. And then the next step was my stepbrother being killed when I was 12. And then the next step after that was me getting pregnant at 19 and what I went through with that It went on to, it's still going on, but when I was 40, my mother disowned me, and then she disowned my sister, my grandchildren, or her grandchildren, my nieces and nephews. That is all part of who I am. I have learned through the years to thank her and every single person that has betrayed or abandoned me because I flip it around to, what have you learned from this? What have you learned I'm not promoting my book, but in my book, I dedicate it to my mother. And I say all the things that we are alike, and I thank her and my father for everything they've given me. Please promote your book. It's not published yet, but been interviewed by a publisher. It's called Cracked for a reason. I got cracked, and so did a whole bunch of other people. So you you grew up in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. You get pregnant at 19. You told me a little bit of that story on that, and that's a very interesting story. If you can share. I'm happy to share all my stories. Like everybody else in this world, we all only have a certain amount of time left. Well, now I have dementia, and I have four to six or eight years, according to the doctors. I want to share as much as I can to motivate other people. When I was 19 and I got pregnant, it was my first time having sex. It was not planned. I knew nothing about sex. I thought it was my punishment and my duty to get married, and so I did. And I knew positively, and there wasn't any um, way of telling at that time what sex the baby would be, but I knew I was having a daughter. Okay, when I had the daughter, I knew she had to have a sister. That took five years almost for that to happen. And then immediately after that, I asked for a divorce. And I said, I needed to learn how to be independent, how to write checks, how to live on my own. And my first husband said, you will. 
and I never got any child support because I made those comments, even after going back to court. When was this? So this was in the early 70s? Yes. Yes, it was. So you were 19, you had a daughter, mm-hmm. you, had, you also had a premonition, or you, your personality type, you say, you had a premonition, you can foresee a lot of these yes. things. You knew you were going to have a daughter. Sometimes I knew. Why did you have that second child? For my daughter, for my first daughter. I never wanted children. A lot of women have a hard time saying that. All I wanted to do was be an artist since I was 16. I never even imagined wearing a bridal gown. I was not one of those young girls that imagine that great dress or walking down the aisle or anything. Both times I got married, I never did. They were small. A couple people were there. That was it. I do not like being the center of attention at all. You don't view yourself as a success because of what you're feeling and what your self-worth, but what you did is kind of amazing. You needed a job to support these two kids. Can you talk about that experience and how you came to be the successful business person? I will never consider myself successful. My way of thinking doesn't allow me to think that just because I have a few homes or a certain amount of money, I'm successful. I don't believe that. And I don't believe my intention was in life to own a manufacturing company. I believe that was a vehicle to do what I was meant to do, my purpose in life. If you ask most people, what is your purpose in life? They can't answer that question. They've never thought about it. And if they say to me, to be a mother or to be really successful at their job, I say, bullshit. That's not your purpose. Can't you think beyond that? What is your purpose in life? Because I do want to get to the story and how you ended up owning this large manufacturing company because that's an that's an incredible story. You took that opportunity and earned it. I will never say I was lucky. I will always say I was fortunate. Defining success is more about people, how you help other people, what you can do for other people, what you do with the fortune you make, how you pass it on. That's what success is to me. That's what I try to do. Can you talk about how you tried to support your two daughters after you got your divorce and you had no child support? So you're this 22, 23, 24-year-old kid, basically, with two kids to support, living in a shithole, self-described. Explain to me what happened. How did you get a job? I had several jobs before I had this one that changed my life. I worked at another manufacturing company. I worked at a dry cleaners. I cleaned houses. worked at a hardware store. I worked a cleaning lady. I did multiple things at a time because I received no child support. And one day, I heard there was an opening at this manufacturing company. And I went to apply there. I met a friend's mother as she was walking off her shift or walking out the door. I'm not sure exactly. I told her I was going to apply for the third shift opening. And she said, I'll put a good word in for you. I don't know exactly what she did, but I don't think it takes a lot to get a third shift factory job. (laughs) But... I got it. From there, I remember one night walking down this aisle 
and I had heard there was a job. Notice I'm saying job, not position, because it's a job in a factory for an assistant supervisor. I thought to myself, what's the worst thing that can happen? The answer is, don't ask the question. That's the worst thing that can happen to you if you don't ask. And so I went into that office, and I asked if I could apply for that job. The supervisor said, what are your qualifications? I said, I'm your best worker, and I'll work for 50 cents an hour less. And she hired me for that job, which I don't believe anybody should ever do. You do not take your best worker off the floor. It's not as profitable. I learned that. And so from there, she retired sometime later, and I did the exact same thing with her supervisor. I asked it the same way, figuring what's the worst that can happen, not asking the question. I went in, and I got the supervisory job, and I had that for a while. And then the general manager of the company one day met me at the time clock at 7 a.m. and said, I want to talk to you in the lunchroom. I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to be fired. What do they think? And I have two kids, and I have no idea what I did wrong. None. And instead, he said to me, Peggy, would you like to come on to first shift? We're purchasing another company, and we're incorporating it into the larger company. This was a hand tool manufacturing company that was worldwide at the time. He said, we'd like you to manage this little department. There's going to only be around 20 people, but you're going to have to teach yourself. I said, I can do that. So I had this metal desk in the middle of the floor for a couple years, and I taught myself time management, human resources, inventory control, ordering raw materials, scheduling, everything that you needed to run a larger company, but on a much smaller scale. So I basically trained myself to run a large company. I did that for a couple of years. And then one day, the same general manager came out and said, the owner wants to talk to you in his office. Now I'm thinking, they really think I robbed something out of here. I'm robbing the place. I never had the self-confidence to think that I was doing something right. It was always a big worry about how I'm going to support my daughters. So that, that basically, that self-worth that you're talking about that you did not have, that basically goes back to your childhood and the ways you yeah. were raised, right? Exactly. And how your mother treated Being you. Being called stupid, failing uh, standardized testing when I was dyslexic. Being called mildly retarded and then having my mother repeat it to me. I always thought I was doing something wrong. I always thought I was stupid. To this day, if I make an error, the bank might call me. What kind of mistake did I make now? You blame yourself. I blame myself for everything. And they'll say, you didn't make any kind of a mistake. We're just calling you. We have tickets for you if you want to go to the art show in Chicago. Well, I never think that. I never think that somebody's giving me a gift. I think I'm always in the wrong. So the president wants to talk to you. Yes, and then general manager and the VP. And he says, I've only heard good things about you through the years. We're building huge plant for the time. This is the late 70s, early 80s. 84,000 square feet. We're going to hire some, uh, two consultants from California, and we'd like them to train you on productivity. If you're able to do this, all the supervisors, all the engineers, every shift, which was three shifts a day, seven days a week would be under you, every one of them. We're going to take an entire year to train you. 
So they had two guys from California come out to train you on what? Productivity. And that, to me, because I'm a creative and I'm a visual learner, was as easy as moving things around in my kitchen. I never felt I worked. I had to observe and clock every operation in the plant. Then I'd set a rate for it. And then if the employees beat the rate, I'd do it all over again. When they'd say, ah, I beat your rate, I'd just time them all over again and adjust it. All the ordering from raw materials through shipping was done on my observations and my rates. Even the sales was under me now. And this was before computers and everything. Oh, I didn't have a computer. And you were doing all this yourself. But you also told me that you had ADHD and dyslexia. Yeah, tension deficit, dyslexia, post-traumatic stress disorder. I had it all. How old are you now? About 30? 28? No, I I think I was about 27 when I had that. And we're talking late 80s, early, I mean, late 70s, early 80s. This is an amazing story. I don't know. I had about 300 people under me right from the beginning. I have always helped in all of my life. I have helped people that are considered disabled or they're considered having mental issues. Right away, I had about 10 people under me that I hired a blind man. I would go to St. Coletta's and give them work to do. And I always worked with people right from the start that other people didn't consider that they had the qualifications, just like I didn't consider I did. So I always wanted to help somebody else out. So you have 300 people under you. Mm-hmm. You're basically running the, this big company at 27, 28 years old. You got two kids at home still living in the shithole? Yeah, yeah, still living in the shithole. <laughs> um, I mean shithole. I didn't have cabinet covers. I, I didn't have that. I sewed my own little gathered things to cover up the plates. My daughter slept in the dining room. I drove an old used car. I had to go buy my Christmas tree on Christmas Eve when they were 50% off. How much money were you making at the time, would you say? Oh, maybe 25000 Supporting two kids. So you got these two consultants from California that came out, taught you for a year. Mm-hmm. You end up running Yes. The entire company, basically. Is there anything else you want to talk about with those two guys from California? Yes, there is. I've always been an extremely loyal person. And I would never, ever backstab a person that gave me an opportunity, which he did. And I still believe that. Who gave you the opportunity? The president of the company? The president of the company. And I still believe that he gave me the opportunity of a lifetime, and it's my job to pass those opportunities on. So the night before the consultants were to leave for California, they wanted to have a thank you dinner with me. They asked me if I would take on a position in their company in California for $100,000 a year. Now, I get no child support. I'm living in a dump. I say to them, I've got to think about this. You know, I have two kids. So from $25,000, supporting two kids, living in a dump, moved to California, which back in the late 70s is a pretty cool place to be, right? To $100,000, that's a 
pretty big step up for a single mom. I never considered for one minute taking that position. All I could think about, I can't wait to talk to the owner in the morning. I have to tell him these guys are trying to screw him. The next morning, I made an appointment through his secretary, and I finally got in there, and I said, don't ever have those guys back. I don't need any help. And this is what they tried to do to you. Not to me, really. To you. Don't have them back here. We have patents. We have secret things going on here. And I don't know. I don't trust them. I don't know what they might have already taken from you. I don't need them. I will be just fine, if not better, without them here. I don't know if I could have did the same thing, being in the situation you were in. I love that loyalty. You continue to work, yep. making $25,000, $30,000 a year. Yep. How long did that go on for? A few years. Until uh, I was, I believe, in my mid-30s, something like that. I loved it. It was easy work for me. I was not your typical manager. I considered my office a fishbowl where I made my money. And I didn't make that much. It had all glass walls and everything. But I was hardly ever in there. I was always out on the floor. I would sweep. I would move carts around. I did everything people under me did. I did the same things they would do. One day, the owner called me up. And he said, Peggy, you know I've had a lot of offers to purchase the company. There again, I'm thinking right away, I'm not going to have a job. I learned later on, you know, that's usually the first thing they do is get rid of whoever's in charge. He said, I'd like to sell you the company. And I laughed. I said, you know, I don't have any money. Frankly, you don't pay me a lot of money either. He said, no, I want to sell you 60% controlling interest of the company. I have to sell it to you at the current interest rate to make it legal and not a gift. But I will finance all of it for you. How much was the finance? Twelve and a half million at eight and a half percent. And this is in the early eighties. Eighties. That's Mid-80s. amazing. Well, I think it was nineteen eighty-five. I had no prepayment penalties. I had nothing. I learned more about business instead of operating a company through him. Very unfortunately, after I signed with him, he passed away a year later, and he never saw me pay for the company. It, it hurts me till this day that he never saw and he believed in me. But what he really never saw was not only did I pay what I owed him, I owed it to his estate at that time, but I bought the other 40% out too. And they charged me the same $12.5 million for 40%. And I had to go before the bank. And I had to use the business as collateral. And that was really a shaky deal for me because I never wanted to lose his business. So that was 1985. He passed away by 1986. You purchased the other 40%, so you got 100% controlling interest. I'm still a little girl. That's the way I think right now. I'm still a little girl. 39 years old. You are. Yes. Yes. And you got how many people working for you at the time? Uh, 300 and something and 800 reps around the world because this was a worldwide business. What, it was empire level? Empire level. 
Mm-hmm. And I purchased it in its um, fourth generation. Craftsman had been our uh, largest customer from the very beginning. And the company started out with a carpenter that wanted to make fine hand tools because he couldn't find anything on the market that was good enough to make the furniture he wanted to make. Craftsman, being our largest customer, went to under my control, and then I married having Lowe's, Home Depot, True Value, Ace, Fleet and Farm, Stanley, and he never got to see any of that. You're sitting here today, you have a sweater on that you told me about. Can you tell me what, why you're wearing this particular yeah, I'm sweater? I'm wearing this to honor him. This was the first gift he gave me for, at the first Christmas after I met him. And it's from the 70s. And when I put it on today, I went, hey, I kind of really like this sweater. I should be wearing it more often. It's vintage. It is vintage. It looks really good. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't personally know. Maybe my girlfriend wouldn't know when it comes because she's a fashion stylist. Uh, these, she would know by these sleeves. I'm sure. Uh, she would pick it out right away. That She's, yeah. she's quick like that. So. You yeah. get into all these different places under your watch. It's this already a worldwide company. It is, okay. It's larger and larger and larger. And the man I married happened to be his son. Don was the owner, and he wanted me to marry his son. This is your second husband? Yes. And he said to me, can you straighten out my wild-ass son? I said, yes, I can. And he will be to work in a suit and tie every single day. He will leave in the morning at 7 a.m. And he did. And he came up with 19 different patents. And that also helped pay for the company. But he was never a salesperson. He was an introvert. He is a genius. But he's not a people person. I was always, he put me there. He would say, Peggy. You, you talk to this customer. You talk to these salespeople. I can't, and he couldn't. When did you marry him? I married Randy in 85. 85. Was his father still alive? Yes. Okay. And, and then... his father pushed that together. Any reason why his father didn't give the company to Randy? Because he was a wild-ass kid. Wild-ass kid. He didn't show up for stuff. He was Midwest motocross champion. He'd drive his motorcycle into the middle of the manufacturing plant in the middle of the night. He'd bring his motor home down in the lower level garage. And who knows what he was doing there, but we would call it the stabbing cabin. (laughs) I don't know what he was doing there, but that was the nickname. Interesting. Yeah. How long did you own the company? Until just a few years ago. It came to be 100 years old. I have a favorite saying. I've said it on PPI, the TV show I'm on. It's a Kenny Rogers song. You have to know when to hold and when to fold. Five generations is pretty huge, and you can't pass it on. You can only sell it, and each time it becomes more and more valuable. You're less able for the next generation to purchase it. We decided five was what it was going to be. You and Randy decided yes. to move it yes, on. Yes, we did. Where's Randy now? Uh, he. <laughs> Are you still married? 
No. Oh, okay. No, I'm not. That's a whole nother story, a well, whole nother podcast. Oh, another, okay. <laughs> okay. I sold him the house we built for our last dream house. He lives there, which by the way, I sold it to him for more than a million dollars than it was worth because he didn't care. He wanted it. And he lives in Arizona part-time. You sold the company a few years ago. Oh. You have this beautiful place here with this great art because you, you always wanted to be an artist or a creative of some sort. Can mm-hmm. you sort of touch on that? Because it's gorgeous here. Thank you very much for saying that. For, I don't know, the last more than 20 years, since 1998, I've been designing my homes and sometimes other people's. Every single design I've had has been published. I've won awards. I'm self-taught. Just two years ago, I was asked to be in the Biennale in Venice, Italy. That is the biggest recognition you can get in the world. I was one of four people from the United States asked, and the last one from Wisconsin was 1953. Ironically, the year I was born, one of 28 in the world. And about 600,000 people go to this show, 1,200 world press report on it. And the award is being asked to participate in the show. So two of my homes were in the show. I had a whole room and videos and stills and a biography of me. Okay, I just keep going back to the dump you lived in with your two kids, taking this job, fortunate enough to get the opportunity, and you running with that opportunity to where you are today. You're self-made. You were fortunate enough to get these things, but you I took it and ran. I know that some people think this is the American dream. I feel it's my responsibility to give back to the community. I'm appalled at some wealthy people that do not give back and do not pay taxes. I paid all my taxes, and Randy and I paid all our taxes. We never deducted one thing. Mm-hmm. You could have all these deductions. We never wrote them down. We thought it was a bother to do that. To his credit, he gave away with me as much as I gave away today. Wow. So we were like that. We put a roof on a public library when a carpenter uh, we knew had cancer that was working on a deck. When he passed away, we found out through his church where he banked, we paid off his mortgage on his home anonymously. That thing I did with Make-A-Wish was nothing new. We didn't talk me. about the Make-A-Wish thing. I, I, I was trying to get to that some okay. way, somehow, because I don't know if you're comfortable talking about you did something, you went through a divorce, yeah. and you got some... Every woman out there or every man should know that you are not allowed to take large amounts of money from your spouse without telling them. And so it's considered embezzlement. He, we had two companies at that time. All I could prove was 300 and some thousand. You can only go back a few years. His attorney kept telling me that. One day, I was on an airplane. I just couldn't get out of my head. I was flying over the Grand Canyon, and my girlfriend gave me the book. I think it's called A Secret or The Secret, something like that. And I had had a mental breakdown before that, and I was in Rogers Memorial. I committed myself to get over what happened to me with his betrayal in our divorce. I'm flying over the Grand Canyon, and I go, Peggy, you have hiked 
up and down there twice. You've carried your own pack. Well, you were down there. You've hiked for a week. You slept with rats running up and down the wall. You can do this. You can prove it. And so I thought about it on the way. And I went, okay, this is what I'm going to do. When I land, I'm going to call my attorney. And I'm going to tell them him I want to earn every single cent of what I can prove back, which required me to go through months and years of receipts, which I was able to get from the company. He also told me things, too. When I landed, I called my attorney before I even had my bags. And I said, this is what I want to do. I want you to pick a charity because I don't want his attorney to say that I'm affiliated with any charity. And I'm going to prove everything, and we're going to donate it to your charity. And this is after his attorney kept saying to me, you can't do this. You're going to appear guilty. Our divorce was about to go to trial. It was that close. And it was really that close because of the attorneys. We agreed on everything. So I remember walking into that meeting. I'm a pretty good negotiator. I've negotiated a lot of deals. I kind of know how to prepare myself. So I'm all head to toe covered, but I'm wearing a pencil skirt, turtleneck, a wide belt, and boots. I always walk in two to three minutes late. Every time I did that, it was with three men. And one would say, you look really fit. I like your eyeglasses. And my attorney would say, I got the best looking client. We sit down. His attorney which I'd love to mention his name, I will off the air because he got mad at me all the time for calling him by his name. I said, you know what? I'm going to prove it and I'm going to give it away. Immediately he says, you're a wealthy woman. You are not going to get anywhere with this. You're going to look really bad if we go to a trial. And I say, I don't think so. He says, okay, what's your plan? And I said, under my attorney's advice, I'm going to donate it all anonymously to Make-A-Wish. Every single cent of it, anonymously. I don't want any credit for this. All I want to do is make a right out of a wrong, which is ironic because my last name was right. He says to my husband, Randy, Randy, you got your checkbook with you? Yeah. He's sort of not even paying attention. He goes, write her a check right now for $60,000 so we know this is a done deal. And you better pay whatever she wants in two weeks because now if we go to trial you're going to look like the bad person. And so that's what I did. So he, he wrote the check to you right then and there, and then you just took that and make a wish. Yes, and uh, my attorney made arrangements for me to meet the president of Make-A-Wish, and I gave her the check, and I told her this much more was coming. And I said, I promise you, for the rest of my life, I will contribute to Make-A-Wish, so I never forget this. To date, she said I've probably uh, granted over a thousand wishes. I love that story. <laughs> Holding people accountable. He deserved to be accountable. Hey, but you and still have a good a, relationship with him yeah, today. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I do. So you guys were able to work through that and still have a good relationship. Work through everything, except for I refuse to be business partners with him. He wanted to still be business partners with me because I was the people person, and I had as many business ideas as he had patents. 
When, did, when did this divorce go through? 2006. 2006. And you sold the company in 2000... I don't know, whatever. 14? Four years, oh, five years ago, okay. something okay. like that. So we ran it together. And my oldest daughter, not his son from a previous marriage, my oldest daughter was president of the company at that time. You have a foundation. Can you talk a little bit about your foundation? Yes, I'm happy to talk about that. For 365 days, one year, I walked every single day, no matter what the weather was. I don't care if it was below zero, I was bundled up and I walked, and I always did the same path. I noticed during the seasons, the needs were different for the residents on part of this block. Part of it was Farwell, part of it was Prospect. Well, the needs are different on Prospect and Farwell. I noticed on Farwell, in the snow, handicapped people couldn't get to the curb. They couldn't catch their bus. I noticed in the summer, there were alcohol bottles all over the place. Then I noticed dirty, dumpy stuff, and trees need to be planted, and flowers, and houses needed to be planted. Every day for a year, I thought about bridging the gap between where I live and Brady Street, because where I live was once called the Gold Coast, and Brady Street is a lot different. And I just wanted to connect the two. Finally, after that year, we'd always stop for coffee. We carried our cup of coffee home with us, and so we never really stopped walking. After all that thinking for a year, I came up with the idea, there's no way I can help this community other than education. I didn't have an education. My mission statement is one child, a family, your neighborhood, our community through education. So you're very active in with your foundation there, but you're also you have another thing you were showing me. Yeah, that you were involved with. You talk about that. Well, I'm a street photographer. You're looking at a photo I took in Cuba of this lady, and I've went around the world teaching myself photography and people because I'm interested in bringing this lady's story back to people that can't travel because I just love people. That's what I've done on the back of this card. I think it's the same. Creating connections by breaking barriers. We acquire the strengths that we have overcome. That's what it says. I'm trying to pay it back for the opportunity I was given. And that's what I feel my real purpose is in life and not to be an owner of a manufacturing company. Until I'm successful at this, I will not be a successful person. You hold yourself to a very, very high standard because then I look at, you gave a lot of people jobs and you gave yeah. a lot of people I know, still, lives. I still do. I always say, I can help you. Somebody always says to me, I have a person that needs help. Will you talk to them? I always say yes. I'll spend hours or days with them. So I never charge one cent for anything I do because that's really my purpose. You also have told me, alluded to it earlier in the podcast, that you have dementia and you only have yep. four or five years or six years yep. left. Uh, Can you talk about 
how that is, how you deal with that mentally. I look at it as another opportunity. Now I get to learn about that, and I, I study it, and I figured out things before the doctors did the scans and the testing and all of that. I'm honest, and I'll ask the doctors when I already know the answer, and I just want them to verify it. I asked the doctor a couple weeks ago, I've heard I'm going to choke to death, that I'm going to forget how to swallow. Is that true? Yes, it is. What amount of time do you think I have on that? That's unpredictable. What's really unpredictable is you're going to go to another stage. We don't know. That could happen tomorrow or it could happen two years from now. I'm trying to educate people about dementia, just like I did dyslexia, and I spoke in front of teachers and students, and I'm taking this as an opportunity. And I'm not afraid. I've never been afraid. I don't know why, but I'm not afraid. Entrepreneurs are all risk takers. I've been taking risks my entire life. I've hiked the Grand Canyon, I told you, a couple of times. I've hiked the Amafi Coast. I've went ziplining zip lining for four hours with no way back. I've never felt I was afraid. After 9-11, I got on the first plane I could, and I said, whatever happens, happens. And that's how I still feel today. That's how I view life. I have a therapist, and I've told her for years, you know, I don't want to live a long time. To me, this is almost a blessing because I watched my grandmother die of gangrene at 94 by her choice. My great-grandmother and my grandfather, everybody lived to be over 100 and was miserable. And I've always said, I don't want to do that. I really don't want to do that. I'm comfortable with it. And the fact that I've been telling a therapist this for years, wow. <laughs> In a way, it's like I'm being given another opportunity. Want to get to one other point? I met you through Jerry Jindusa. Yes, you I know love him, Jerry. You know He's him great. through yes. uh, PPI Project yes, Pitch It. Project Pitch It. How He's did you get wonderful? I get to make fun of him, and he lets me. How is that experience being on TV, doing the Project Pitch It? You get to vet all these entrepreneurs in the Milwaukee area. It's super interesting to do that because you. <laughs> learn about all these products that are going to come out ahead of time. When I was asked, it was a setup. I did not know I was going to be asked to be on a TV show. I was invited to a party. I did not know it was the wind-up party for the season before. And the producer came up to me. She had a Cosmo in her hand. I had a Cosmo in my hand. She said, you know, I'm going to ask you to be on the TV show. I go, what TV show? I don't even watch TV. And I, I think I hadn't watched TV in five years. I have a bunch of TVs I never watch. I told her, I don't watch TV. I never heard of your show. She handed me a thumb drive. She goes, watch this. But I am going to ask you to be on the show. I go, okay. I'm thinking, yeah, right. She has a Cosmo in her hand. Why would she ask me to be on TV? Nobody knows about me. Who cares about me? She's just talking through a Cosmo. A couple months later, I run into her at a charity event, and she says, I haven't forgotten about you. And she introduces me to her husband. So it's now like an interview with her and her husband. And she said, I'm going to call you. 
one of these days you're just going to get a call and I'm going to ask you to meet me and I want you to be on the show. Have you watched the thumb drive? No, I haven't. Okay, well, maybe you will when I call you. I go, yeah, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) I'm not much of a TV watcher. (laughs) So one day she does call me. She goes, bring your pen. I'm asking you to lunch, and I'm going to put in front of you a contract. This is really weird. Who does this? I'm a nobody. Then I hear who the other judges are. Their claim to fame. And I'm like, I'm nobody. I don't know how. Who were the other judges at the time? Jerry Jindusa, David Gruber, and everybody's heard of him. Right. And, uh, was Peter Fane on there at that time? I took his place, okay. and I didn't know who he was. <laughs> I ran into him at an event afterwards, and I said, don't I know you from somewhere? And he goes, you're my replacement on the TV show. I go, oh, okay. <laughs> and Debbie Allen, Dr. Debbie Allen, was. And now uh, she's off, and uh, Gail... Chairman of the board of We Energies is on there, and the producer said, you're going to bring life to the show. You're going to make it real. I did. I don't hold back. And they can edit me out. I don't care. But I don't hold back. You're refreshing is what you are. You're honest. You're open. So we're winding down here a little bit. Is there a question I didn't ask that you wish I would have asked? I want to explain the difference between post-traumatic stress disorder and complex, which is what I have, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Complex means it's never stopping. I had traumas from the age of two, many different ones. The last one was about six months ago. I've had a therapist for 15 years. She said to me, the only hope is that You'll have less days of depression, and it won't be as severe. I still have panic attacks. I still have heart palpitations. I now have to travel with someone, and I'm not sure if that's because of that or my dementia. But I can't handle loud, sudden noises and crowds. I can't. I just can't. I would rather be home than do that. Has that been with you since you were a child? The depression, the anxiety. How did you deal with, with all of that, especially raising the two kids, plus your job? Was your job your relief? Yes, it was. And it was my guilt because I was leaving my daughters and they had to get baby, I had to get babysitters for them. So it was also my guilt. They took it out on me because I wasn't the cookie-baking mom at home. I, I had to work to give them a livelihood and myself. It seems to me you do what fulfills you and you have that opportunity to do that. Yes. I admire that in people. Well, thank you. Ironically, I've had two good friends say to me, you don't have any problems because you have money. They are no longer my friends. It's like saying you don't have a heart. I don't feel. It's the worst insult you could ever get. I've had this conversation with some other people that are wealthy. A lot of people that are wealthy that basically gone out and done it themselves, they don't do it for the money. They do it to build things. They do it because they enjoy it. What is wealthy? Do these people not know what wealthy is? 
because it's not having a lot of money. I consider that a job. They think it solves all your issues. I don't think. I think it adds to it. It's the exact opposite. I was raised in a blue-collar family, and I still believe I'm that blue-collar person. Money at the end of the day is just a tool. Yes, you can enjoy some things, and you can pay your bills, but at the end of the day, you are who you are. And it's what you do with it and how you want to spend it. When it ends, I hope I'm remembered by that and not how I got it, uh, how I gave it away. When you're vulnerable, the realness comes out. Uh, People can take advantage of people that are vulnerable, but at the end of the day, it's, it's their issue. Because if you're not honest and open and vulnerable, you don't grow as a human. We talk about this even at work. Because Jerry is the definition of an entrepreneur to me, because he doesn't do it for the money. He's doing it to grow something. He loves it. It's his passion. He does it for those reasons. He doesn't do it for anything else. Ask him what his purpose is. I never have asked him that. I will ask him what purpose. You ask him that. People have no idea what their purpose is in life. Peggy Ann, and I love your name, Peggy Ann. (laughs) It's been an absolute joy to talk to you. Thank you for doing this, and I would love to have you on again sometime. Really? Yes, I would. I'd love to be on it again. You know I love to talk. Especially about the art scene and things of that nature. Okay, well, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been a Baseball Buddha Media production. 